Father, I pray that the words on our mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our God, our Rock, and our Redeemer, and everything that we do tonight may it be to your glory and your praise. Thank you, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Noah, that was an amazing song right there. That was an amazing song. I couldn't think of a better lead-in for what Deb and I are going to talk about tonight. The title is Holistically Holy. Yeah. And so hopefully at the end of this next 40 minutes, you're going to have an idea of what it means to be holistically holy Not a thorough idea, but I hope we point you in the right direction that our Father in Heaven wants you to go. Um, Before we get started, just to set the uh, whole tone here, and just so we can have a basic understanding, uh, if you're like me, you probably had some varied experiences this week. Some incredible highs, and kind of down there a little bit too, right? And you found yourself in situations, and sometimes it's kind of like, who am I? What is going on here? And it's good for us to come together and remind one another of who we are. In order to be holistically holy, we have to have an idea of what that means about us. Who are we? Whenever you go to a doctor, he has an idea of what a well person is supposed to be like. And because of that idea, he is able to address those areas that we need. In the same way, I want us to look at this video from the Bible Project on the image of God. This is who we are. To tell people what to do, order things to be made. Yeah, they got to define good and evil. And these kings would often make statues of themselves, which in Hebrew were called selim, often translated as idol or image. But for Israel, they didn't view their kings as the god. In fact, they were never supposed to even make images of God. It's exactly right, and that was really unique for that time and culture. This is rooted, first of all, in Israel's belief that you can't reduce the creator God down to any one thing in creation. But there's another reason. People aren't to make images of God because God has already made images of himself. When did he do that? Let's go to page one of the Bible. And the first person we meet there is God. He's the one with authority over all creation. He speaks and creation obeys. And he defines what is good and not good. In other words, he alone is king. But then surprisingly, as the pinnacle of all of God's creative work, he makes humans. And he calls all of them the image of God. So he gives all humans the authority to rule. Exactly. That's what he goes on to say. He tells the humans to subdue the earth and to rule it. And so this task that once belonged only to elite kings is here in the Bible the task of every human being. This was a revolutionary statement in its day because all humans are being called to rule and to participate in the human project. So what does this mean? I mean, how are we all supposed to rule? So the picture we get in Genesis is gardening. Gardening? Yes. Gardening. So they rule the earth by cultivating it, by harnessing all of the earth's raw potential and then making something more and new out of it. So growing food for each other. 
Yes, but that also includes growing families then, which become neighborhoods, and then they create communities where people are going to work and take care of each other and build businesses and cities that will expand to new places and so on. So ruling is really the day-to-day acts of our work and creativity. Yes, we take the world somewhere. This is humanity's divine and sacred task. Yeah, and this all sounds really nice. And humans have designed some pretty great things. But just as often we create things that cause a lot of suffering and a lot of injustice, so maybe we shouldn't actually be ruling. Yeah, so the Bible addresses this. In Genesis, what happens is that God gives humans a choice about how they're going to rule. So are they going to use their authority for the benefit of others, which is God's definition of good, or are they going to turn away and define good and evil for themselves and use their authority for self-advantage? And in the story, they choose to define good and evil on their own terms. And so this is the Bible's depiction of the human condition. So sometimes we pull off amazingly good stuff, but just as often, despite our best intentions, we act selfishly and we create evil in the world. And so we're stuck as mediocre rulers making a mess of things. But that's not... So the Bible goes that all of this was resolved when God bound himself to humanity through Jesus. And he showed us what it looks like to truly rule as a human. So what does it look like? Well, Jesus ruled by serving and by seeking the best for others, by putting himself underneath them and loving not just his friends, but also his enemies. And that's not a typical way to rule. And not only that, Jesus confronted the consequences of all of the evil and the death that we have created by our messed up ways of ruling. And he takes it. I mean, he lets it kill him. And so when the New Testament writers looked back to Jesus' resurrection, they see a whole new future opening up for all humanity. Jesus is a new way to be human. Yeah, that's why they call Jesus the image of God or the new human. And not only that, they also believe that Jesus' divine life and power is now available to heal and to transform us to become our life and power. And this sounds really nice, but what does it really look like? So... Practically, the Apostle Paul said it looks like people being filled by Jesus' own presence and spirit, filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and integrity and gentleness and self-control. He says this is the new humanity that God wants to create in us so that we become people in whom God's image is being restored, people who will move the human project forward. And that's actually how the story of the Bible ends. It's a renewed world where God is on his throne and his servants are all around him, but they're the ones ruling over this new world, taking it into new, uncharted territory with Jesus as their healer and their guide. Okay, we are created in the image of God. As you come back to what you were created for, the more holistically holy you become. You know, the word holy is one of those church words that can kind of be a little bit confusing, but all it means is set apart from. Set apart from what? Set apart from the ways of rebellion, the ways of destruction the ways of a fallen world, and set apart to God himself. It's interesting, when you're reading from Genesis to Revelation, 
God never had in mind a one-act play where all he's going to do is one thing and then good luck. What he had in mind is for you to belong to him and for you to walk with him and for you to come back and possess that status, the image of God. You are the image of God. He created you. And yet after, oftentimes we don't feel that way. We want to be holistically holy, but we feel fractured. And the enemies of the soul, fear and doubt and anxiety, begin to take over. And all of a sudden we isolate ourselves from one another. We get behind machines and laptops and TVs. And it's safer. We, we try and experience a vicarious existence. And the whole time, we are yearning to get back to what we were created for. Wouldn't it be great if we didn't need anything to feel contentment? Wouldn't it be great if we didn't need all of this affirmation that ends up being false and tricking us in the back to feel good about ourselves? Wouldn't it be great to be at peace? when everything else is going crazy around you. Isn't that what we long for? The image of God. We are here to create. We are here to build. We are here to pull together. But there is a battle against us, right? And that battle takes place in two ways. I want to set the stage. I'm going to get to us being holistically holy. Deb and I have some things to share about that, but let's just kind of define what's going on and what we're up against. Ephesians chapter 6. How many people in here play chess? Oh my goodness. I wish I could remember every hand because honestly, if you ever ask me to play chess, I'm staying away from you, okay? <laughs> I have been easy cannon fodder from some chess masters in the past. You know, the thing, I, there, there was this one brother out in New Jersey that, seriously, he went to all these tournaments. I make one move, the first move. And he says, I'll get you beaten four moves. And I'm thinking, how, would, how do you know that? Just watch, you know. And sure enough, he would do it. And I'm sitting there going, I'm going to go back to checkers or something, you know, <laughs> something easier. But why could he do that? Because he was a master at it. He knew every angle. He knew every trick. I just kind of walked in. I knew where the pawn goes. I know where the rook goes. I know how to move the pieces. But the master knows all the strategies. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. We oftentimes walk blindly in to the master of evil's strategy. 
He's been at this a lot longer than us. His demons are well trained. And I know that doesn't sound very intellectual in the 21st century, but it is a truth. And it's even come to a point where non-Christians will talk about ontological evil. Now, what does that mean? It means evil they can't describe. <laughs> they can say, well, this person grew up and all these bad things, and that, but then there's this stuff that, yeah, you need to take your stand. You and I cannot win. Adam and Eve went right into it. They just played right his game. Hey, I'll tell you what. You know, it's great what God's done for you, but you know, you're not going to die. You decide what's good for your life. You decide that. You become the standard of good and evil. And at that moment, they took the image of God and became a tarnished image of what could have been. So what does Satan do? Here's the second area. He cannot create anything. He only twists what God creates. And that's why if only he could come up with something that was totally different, it'd be easy to see, right? No. He takes that which is good and twists it. And in Romans... The 8th chapter, this is where the battle is for us. Romans 8, starting there in verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature, most translations say the flesh, have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. What happens, guys, and what goes through? Even today, I ended up getting angry, and I sinned in my anger. I didn't do anything to her. I didn't shout, or I didn't scream, but I still sinned. She's going down to help take care of our grandchildren in, in North Carolina. I found a $40 one-way ticket to Charlotte, North Carolina, from New York. I found that. I got it three, three weeks ago today. She says, now, when am I going? I said, well, look me. Look. I couldn't find it. And all of a sudden, I started thinking, you know what? When I found that, I was getting calls. I was having to prepare stuff. I, did I not get that? Is it now going to cost me hundreds of dollars? And so I'm getting angry about, first of all, why did I forget that? And then secondly, money is going to cost me more. And then here's where the sin started to ratchet up. And then thirdly, it was other people. If I hadn't been serving and trying to help so many people, I would have paid attention and done what this needed. Oh, I sinned. I sinned. There is no doubt about it. And I had to repent. We did find, I did get the ticket. There was, you know, she, she found, 
I don't deserve that. That's grace. <laughs> because of my attitude. But what happens, guys? Next January, I'll have been a Christian 46 years. I know better than this, quote, unquote, right? I know better. But Satan got in there, you know, I got, need to be responsible with finances. Well, let's twist that and make it just control you, right? I need to make sure that, you know, I want to be caring for people. But, you know, how do you draw boundaries? But now let's make it to attack and to accuse. And to, that which is good becomes. And you see, that's what he does. There are some God-given desires we all have that come from our body. And they're good. Sexuality is good. But what does Satan do? He knocks off all the good except for gratification and go after that. Oh, I, I, I've got to get some release. I've got to do this. I've got to. We start believing this stuff. What about rest? Rest is good. What does he do? He gets in there and twists it and laziness becomes a pursuit. What about relationships? Good. He created them. Friendships. Everything. But all of a sudden, they become the source of our security. And so we're envious. We're jealous. We're resentful. We have all this stuff comes in from something that started out good. But he twisted it. What about hunger? It's good. We eat to live. But then he twists it and we start living to eat. We go, that's comfort, man. That's how we deal with stress. And lastly, what about significance? We are the image of God. Yes, we're tarnished, but it doesn't change the fact of our creation. We are the image of God. That's why Jesus died for us. We are valuable. But this thing of feeling significance, Adam and Eve had it. We're taking care of creation. We're going to reproduce. We're going to have more children and more and more. And we will all. That is important. That is good. But now Satan will come in and twist it. And now being significant is all about this insatiable need for affirmation from everything else. We look in a mirror. I'm not tall enough. I'm not short enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm not white enough. I'm not black enough. I'm not Asian enough. I'm not Latin enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not this enough. I'm not. Where does this come from? We're dying. We want significance. But Satan's twisted it. And now we're addicted to mirrors. We can't walk by mirrors. We just got to, oh my gosh, please, 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 let's haze that mirror up a little bit, all right? Let's have one of those nice little mirrors like that. I want, I want one of those mirrors, okay? We listen to Snapchat. We go on Facebook. We go to TVs. We do everything else. You know, if we post something on Facebook and someone doesn't like it or someone says, I don't agree, our day is absolutely ruined. <laughs> It is funny in a way, but then it's so sad, isn't it? What happened to the image of God? What happened to the fact that we were significant because our Father said we were? That by creation, why is it that we search everywhere else? Because Satan comes along and twists that legitimate thing. You ought to feel good about the fact you're creating the image of God. You, that ought to be your baseline where you start from. But he comes and twists it. 
Now we can't be satisfied with that. I want to be better than. I want to be more liked. I want to be famous. I want to be more famous. I want on and on and on. And we get fractured and we get torn apart. And God sheds tears over us. But God doesn't quit. And into the world comes Jesus. And he came, yes, to forgive your sins. But we're going to see he came to do a lot more than that, folks. He came to make you holistically holy. He came you to set you back on that journey to be that image of God. And he is taking the tarnish off. He is sealing up the cracks. He is making us like that stained glass. We're shattered. We're broken. I love it, Noah. And he's putting it, putting it together. And the light of Christ is shining through us. That is what he's doing. But to get there, you've got to answer three questions. Question number one, who are you going to listen to? I want you to go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Jesus, I'm sorry, John 4. John 14 is a good passage, too. You know, feel free. I mean, don't, don't ever let me limit you in reading the Bible, okay? You read that as well. But in John 4, Jesus, uh, tired, he sits down, a well there in Samaria. A woman comes to draw water at the well. He speaks to her. And, of course, she's shocked. It's like, a man is speaking to me, a Jewish man is speaking to me, a Samaritan. Wow, this violates everything. What's going on here? And Jesus begins to ask her questions about herself. And in that, she begins to, you know, get a little bit nervous there. But um, she says in verse 11, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and flocks and herds? Jesus answered, and I want you to listen to this, everyone who drinks this water that she's getting will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you believe that? Who are you going to believe? No, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I know. I've said that a lot before, but you know what I've been? I've been a Christian atheist. I didn't believe this. I mean, I, 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 if you would have sat down, Sheridan, do you believe? Yes, I, I, hallelujah, I believe it. But how was I living? What was I running after? Where was I seeking for direction in my life? What was I hungry to learn about? Turn on the TV. Here's the newest self-help thing. Turn on this or listen to Snapchat, what our friends are doing. They never tell you the complete story, by the way, in that, right? But it's always got to be glorious. And so now we even have conditions, FOMO, fear of missing out. It's unbelievable. Who... Uh, will we listen to? Who are we going to believe? Jesus claimed that if you come to him, 
you will have everything you need. Everything. I want a better job. Well, good. You know what? You need to go and get the best job you can get. You know why? Because that's your ability. And you don't ever want to sit on your ability. So you just go and just get the best job you can get. But don't make it your life. Make it an extension of who you are, gift-wise, that you may glorify God. I hope you make a lot of money so that you can give away a lot of money. That's the point. I hope you get a lot of money so you can steward it. It's okay to enjoy things, but steward it so you can help people and then enjoy it. I'd rather you have it than people out there doing drugs and selling drugs, you know? I want you to have it to use it for God's glory. But bottom line, who are you going to believe? Will you really believe this? Are you going to be looking at, you know what? I'm going to believe everything Jesus says. It may cost me. I may not understand everything. But I'm not going to be a Christian atheist anymore. I'm not going to live my life proclaiming something. But basically, there's nothing I really have to offer anyone else because I'm living the same life they are. There's nothing different. You know what, guys? We are weak. We need to embrace weaknesses. But you know what God is supposed to happen when you embrace weakness? Strength is supposed to come. I hear people a lot of times, well, I'm weak, I'm weak, I'm weak. Well, hallelujah. But at some point, if you're really weak in God's care, you become strong. And that's a testimony to who God is. It's never an excuse. It's just an opportunity for God to unleash that. Who are you going to believe? Second question, I want Deb to share some things. She's got some stuff. Where are you going to go? All righty. So, um, you know, I love the video that we showed and so many of the things that Sheridan was saying about Jesus and the water that he gives us. But sometimes we have to know the process, the day-to-day, right? Um, I love that God simplifies things for us. A new way to be human, Jesus, right? Jesus, the example of wholeness that God intended for all of humanity. For everybody in here. Everybody in here has spiritual DNA that's created to be loving, joyful, patient, full of integrity, self-controlled, kind, faithful, not anxious. You know, there's a way for us as human beings to be filled with his presence and spirit. And we know that when we become Christians, our sins are forgiven and we're given the Holy Spirit. But there's a way to live where we don't have to wait until the next retreat or the next vacation or the next getaway. Not that we don't need those times. What, you know, whatever, we need them to truly be refreshed and continue to become whole. Becoming more and more of who God created us to be. I'm going to say it a different way. We don't have to live our lives waiting for the next retreat, the next vacation, or time off from the hamster wheel of this thing called life. That's always going to be a bottomless longing if that's how we think. 
and that's not what God intended. Jesus gives us a way to bring uh, what refreshes us all the time, all the time. Uh, So I want to look at a scripture that can train us to live this out every day. You know, when you get so inspired at a retreat or you get so refreshed when you're on vacation and you're out in nature or whatever, see, God really intends that to be our daily life. We see what it feels like. We see what it looks like when we have those times. But that's what God always intended. That's how Jesus lived, right? And we're people that are allowing Jesus to mentor us in daily life. So let's look at Matthew 11, 28 through 30. And I'm just going to read it. You can write it down because I'm going to use the amplified version of this. Um, It says, this is Jesus saying, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden and overburdened, and I will cause you to rest. I will ease and relieve and refresh your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn, learn of me. For I am gentle or meek, and I'm going to tell you about that word in a minute, and humble in heart, and you will find rest, relief, and ease, and refreshment, and recreation, and blessed quiet. For your souls. For my yoke is wholesome, useful, good, not harsh, hard, sharp, or pressing, but gracious and pleasant. And my burden is light and easy to be borne. Doesn't that just sound wonderful? (laughs) That's why I love that version. I've had it laminated and put on my refrigerator so I could just read all those words, you know, every day. Jesus is saying to come to him. Now, what does that mean? And what does it look like? Well, I'll tell you a few things I think it means. It means be still. I have a pillow on my sofa that says be still. I need it everywhere in my house. Be still. It means to stop, to breathe, and consider him. How he lived. The gospel should be your daily food. No matter what else you're, you're studying in your Bible, take a little incident in one gospel every day and refresh your mind about who Jesus is. It'll change your life. Then arrange and craft your day in and day out life to listen to him, seek him, and understand him. Now, you have to craft your life that way. Because if you go for a week and you haven't had this time, God, and I'm going to talk about it in a second, but God means for us to daily be refreshed by Jesus. And when, we, when he says come to him, that means that our full attention, our focus, is on Jesus and being refreshed. You know, I know what you, the hamster wheel, right? I know. Commercials. My mind goes nonstop. Nonstop. It, it's taken, it took years for me to unravel in my mind enough to just have nothing else in my mind but to focus 
on what I was reading in the scriptures and absorb it. And I think we still have to do that to train ourselves. You have to train yourself to do this. Train yourself to come to Jesus. It doesn't just happen. And you know what I'm talking about. In this city, it doesn't happen anywhere. But in this city, it is never going to happen. Unless you dig your heels and say, I am going to be still. I am going to be quiet. I am going to get in a place where I'm not distracted and I can focus. If it's 20 minutes, 30 minutes, but I am doing it. It will revolutionize your life. That's what Jesus said. Learn from him because being humble and gentle, and that word in the Greek means not anxious. That's what it means when you look it up. Humble and not anxious, and we will find rest. Wholeness is what we're talking about. The labor and the overburdened way that we're living is not what he intends. No matter what area we're talking about, it can be physical, it can be our thinking, our emotions, whatever relationship we're having to deal with, whatever the challenge, whatever the job, whatever the season of your life, he himself will walk us through it if, if we learn from him. So many times when we're not able to work, work through things is we're not allowing Jesus to walk us through it. We're not spending time with him in his presence, listening to him, his word, and what the Holy Spirit puts on our hearts, which is never different than what the scriptures say, by the way. It's always what the scripture says, but the Holy Spirit will bring it to mind. No matter what we're facing, ask yourself these two questions. How do I need to be humble in this situation? Philippians 2, your attitude should be, you know it, go to those scriptures, right? The same as Jesus. What part is my anxious heart playing in this scenario and why am I anxious? See, if you don't stop and consider things, you're not going to get to the root of things. You're just going to keep going on the hamster wheel. I'm supposed to be a Christian. I'm supposed to be a Christian. This is supposed to be life to the full. Why do I not why is it not like that? And you then what does Satan do? He starts chipping away at your faith. Oh, this doesn't really work. Right? No, it's because we haven't sat at the feet of Jesus to learn. And see, we can help each other with those principles, but only you can live your relationship to God. There's nobody on the planet, I don't care how spiritual they are or how long they've been a Christian, that can live your relationship to God for you. You have to do that. Psalm 4, 6, and 8. Many say, oh, that we might see some good. Do you ever feel that way? Oh, that we might... Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you, Lord, alone make me dwell in safety and confident trust. You know, years ago I did a study on hope in God alone. I think I've even talked to some of you about it. I studied for a while because I was determined that I was going to learn to put my hope in God alone. No matter what happened, no matter what anybody else did in my family, my friends, whatever, but my hope wasn't going to be built on anything else except God alone. It was revolutionary to me. 
Um, you know, the, the word that I was talking about, the, the um, uh, not anxious, let me just read you this. In the Hebrew scriptures, it says meekness or gentleness, that non-anxiousness towards God, is that disposition of spirit in which, listen to this, we accept his dealings with us as good. And therefore, without disputing or resisting. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, the meek are those wholly relying on God rather than their own strength to defend against injustice. Thus, meekness toward evil people means knowing God is permitting the injuries they inflict, that he is using them to purify his elect, and that he will deliver his elect in his time. The gentle person is not occupied with self at all. This is a work of the Holy Spirit, not of human will. And I'm not talking about the injustices that's abuse. Let me just say that. But even in situations sometimes that we have to get ourselves out of, it doesn't damage our hearts because we can still love our enemies. We can still pray for those who persecute us. It's that kind of heart care that Jesus gives us and makes possible. Question, what would your life look like if Jesus was living it? Let me say it again. What would your life look like if Jesus was living it? You know, sometimes it's helpful to have a paradigm shift. It gives us a way to start believing, understanding, and surrendering to what God makes clear to us when we come to him in prayer and wanting to learn from him by absorbing his word. You know, sometimes we're, we're think, what would Jesus do? Remember that old thing. Or, i got to be like Jesus, i got to be like Jesus. But the paradigm shift is if you, if you put Jesus in your place, in your life, in your job, in, in the time that you spend with God every day, daily, right? The, the uh, challenges that you have. What would your life look like? If Jesus were living it. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's different. It's different when you think that way. Right? And then in all those scenarios, you can start to become, because you're going to Jesus, to figure out who to be. You know, that's one of my prayers all the time. God, help me to be who I need to be. Because many situations I have no idea. When I walk into them, what that's going to be. But I'm confident and trust that God's going to help me. You know, that, um, that whole yoke thing, um, when you go through all those characteristics, is so encouraging. And one of the things that I want you to know when these feelings and doubts, fears come up, I love if you go back earlier in Matthew 11, what you'll find there is John the Baptist is already in prison. And John the Baptist, now we all know who John the Baptist was, right? I mean, he was the fearless man out in the wilderness, paving the way for the Messiah, for Jesus, his cousin, to come on the scene, right? But earlier in Matthew 11, right before I read that, come to me, John the Baptist was already imprisoned, and he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect some someone different? 
John the Baptist is asking this question. He wanted to hear one more time that Jesus really was the Messiah. He was John the Baptist. And I'm telling you that so you don't feel like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? I'm going through this. John the Baptist went through it. He sent guys to go ask him. And Jesus said, you go tell John what you're seeing. And he told him all about the miracles. Go back and read that whole chapter of Matthew 11. It's amazing. I think grieving, deaths, grieving comes in all forms, right? Deaths, dreams that are unrealized, health challenges, lost opportunities. There's many. We can all make a list, right? It's one of the most challenging times in life, but it's such a great um, it's such a great example of what Jesus can do to transform us into his image as never before. I call it a sacred space, a sacred space and time when we grow in our intimacy and closeness to God like no other. It's very humbling to grieve, no matter what, what area you're grieving in. It's very humbling and has the potential to stop us from maturing if we refuse to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him, right? Sometimes when we're grieving, we just need to figure out how to go on. And I I remember in 1998 when my youngest brother died of alcoholism. That was one of the times for me. There's been many others. But I had to figure out how to go on with life because it hurt me so deeply so very deeply. And I had to deal with things that I hadn't had to deal with in years that came up, that Satan brought up for me to try to take me out. You know, there's always a spiritual battle, but there's sometimes when Satan tries to take you out. And we need to be aware of that so that we really sit at the at the feet of Jesus. I don't know how much time I have. Okay, one more scripture real quick. 2 Corinthians 4.16 Therefore we do not become discouraged, utterly spiritless, exhausted, and wearied out through fear. Though our outer man is progressively decaying and wasting away, yet our inner self is being renewed day by day. You know, about 10 years ago when Sheridan and I started spending more time with the Edge Ministry, we loved that name because it means every day God is enough. Every day God is enough, right? Every day God empowers, right? Every day God empowers. As I look back over the 45 years, I've... I've, and while I've tried my best to make Jesus Lord, there are days, weeks, years, and decades at times when I was fighting being overwhelmed, faithless, hopeless, needing to change things in my character, struggling at times with not believing I could change as much as I saw I needed to. And it never stopped me from doing anything. It didn't stop me from coming to church, sharing my faith, all those things. But underneath, there were struggles. And they didn't last just a day sometimes, right? Matthew 11 helped me learn to live in the presence of Jesus and the fact that Jesus asked me to only live one day at a time 
helped me to focus and set boundaries on my emotions that wanted to run away and be used by the demons. Hope returned as I got encouragement and refreshment from God's word. His spirit empowering me and being my wonderful counselor. Don't you love that? Lamentations 3 assured me that his mercies are new every single morning. Before I knew it, I had changed. Some of the situations never changed or haven't yet, but Jesus has changed me for the better. It's not so much what happens in our lives that hurts us, but how we respond to what happens. Keeping a fresh look at Jesus day in and day out as the one who gives us security helps us get our bearings and truly does refresh our souls so that we can continue to train ourselves to be like Jesus, to be godly, to be the very best version of ourselves, to continue in all areas to allow God to make us whole, to be that new human and love and influence the people around us all the time. Question number one, who will you believe? Question number two, where will you go? And lastly, what are you going to do? We touched on a lot of different things. But if nothing's done, what good is it? Deb just went and talked about all the scripture. When we go to Jesus... He'll live his life through us and live our life. We'll do that. But how many times? Oh, I believe in Jesus. But we don't go there. We don't go there. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And America does not like that. See, American Christianity is pretty much have it your way. American Christianity is very emotional. Talk about the cross. Oh, hallelujah. The cross, the cross is where God just showed his love for me. That is true. But let me point out something. I was reading uh, The Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard, which I would highly recommend if you want to train yourself to be godly. And he points out, he quotes a historian, did you know that the cross did not become a symbol of Christianity until the 4th century? I mean, early Christians would talk about the cross as far as the, that's where God accomplished forgiveness for us, right? He died for our sins. But you know what the early church focused on? They focused on the life of Jesus. Not just one day or three days, but it was the life of Jesus. Because he came into the world not to forgive us so that we continue to live rebellious and fractured and not the image of God. 
He came in the world to teach us how to live as the image of God. You know what? God could have accomplished everything on the cross in a week. He could have come down as a man, offended the Romans, offended the religious leaders. Boom, got beat up, crucified, raised him on the third day. There you go, folks. There's forgiveness accomplished for you. And that's what people in our society want. They want the forgiveness. They don't want the life. And you cannot have the forgiveness without the life. That's why Paul said, you need to train yourself to be godly. I am an amazing air guitarist. I can do Jimi Hendrix. Play it with my teeth. It's, it's amazing. I have got talent coming out of me. I love guitars. I love watching these guys play. I have a diverse record collection. I got some old blues guitars. I got bluegrass. I got rock and roll. I got rock. I got them. And I just love to hear the different, you know, riffs and things. I can play some chords, but you know what? I can sit there and air guitar it, but I will never even understand, begin to understand what it's like to do that because I haven't trained myself. These guys that get up here, that's hours of practicing. When nobody's noticing, nobody's clapping, hey, isn't that great? They're in there and their fingers are getting all messed up, and they, but they keep doing it, and they keep doing it, and they keep doing it. We love the end product. But you don't get the end product when it comes to character unless you're willing to do the work all along. <laughs> salvation is a gift. You cannot earn salvation. But you were saved to get to work on yourself. You have been given ability by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But you do not become godly unless you train yourself. You know, what is training? I don't even know if this is a great definition. I wrote it. This was in Wright's Dictionary, okay? It's a series of repeated actions to produce an ability, an able, and automatic result. A series of, you do it over and over and over again so that you become able to do something and automatic. Isn't that it? You can see these guys get out there on the guitar, and they can jam. They don't have to practice when they want. You know why? It's automatic now. They've been doing that all this time. And now it's just automatic, and they're able. But that came by a series of the same action over and over and over and over. You and I are supposed to live our lives automatically like Christ. He came into this world, spent 33 years facing all of the fleshly twisting that Satan was trying to do. All of those areas I talked about, he faced them. But look what he did. Through solitude, through fasting, through prayer, through service, I mean, you name it. He went after it and trained himself so it becomes an automatic godly response. He was vulnerable. He was vulnerable. But he did all of that so that he could say to you and to me, follow me. I love the cross.
The cross is a statement of the extent of God's love. But I've been called to more than one action. I've been called to a life. And that was the point of the cross. To erase the barrier so that now I could live on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday for God. I could live in whatever job you have or whatever ministry I have. I could live in whatever family situation is around me. I could live in whatever neighborhood. I could do that. And it doesn't, it isn't me, it is Christ. But I've got to train myself to be godly. I've got to put myself into a plan. And that's what I want to close with. What is your plan? That you're going to do some over and over and over again so that you become more able and it becomes automatic. How many times have people just dealt, well, I have a bad attitude about this, a bad attitude. What are you, what's your plan? That's not an option. What's your plan? If you've got anger issues, what's your plan? If you have fear and doubt, what's your plan? Well, I don't know a plan. Get with somebody. Seriously, this is the church. That's the purpose of the church. We're in this together. You don't have to go broadcast to everyone, you know, stuff that's going on with you. But you've got to find somebody and say, brother, sister, here's what's going on with me. Here's what I want to change. Take one thing at a time. you got the rest of your life to keep changing. So that's all God. One thing at a time over and over and over again. Don't do actions without understanding why. We train ourselves not for training's sake. I hate going to the gym for Jim's sake. <laughs> but when I can still lift a couple of things and I'm not walking around and, you know, real weak, it's like, okay, that's why I go. I just need to keep a little bit of strength here, okay? It, it isn't sitting there with those stupid weights, all right? <laughs> Whatever happened to leisure size? Remember somebody invented that? I think it, you hook up and you just... You get exercise, weird. But you don't train for training's sake. You train to become godly like Christ. To be able to respond when you are, someone treats you wrong automatically like Jesus rather than what? But it's like, wow, this is a fallen world. I'm going to pray for that person. You start today training yourself. Every person that cuts you off in traffic, jumps in the subway door before you, all of that, decide, I'm going to pray. How many people can I pray for today that I would rather resent? No, that sounds kind of ridiculous. I'm just giving you a point. That's what you do. That is the burden that is light. That is the yoke that is easy. Jesus has already done it. He wants to live His life through you, your life, he wants to live it for you. But you've got to come to him, and you've got to do it over and over and over again and keep your eye on the master. Apart from him, you can do nothing, but he's given you everything for life and godliness. Don't you love it? Apostle Peter, at the end of his life, one of the last things he said, praise be to God, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. This guy's going to die (laughs) for the faith. He's been doing this for 30 years. Boy, it's not as exciting as... He didn't sit around and do that. He said, add to your faith knowledge, knowledge, goodness, goodness, self and just on and on. And keep adding, baby. You know why? He was in training. He was in training. Is it any wonder why he was saying, I'm looking forward 
you know, to that rich welcome in that eternal kingdom. Are you bored? You need to get training. Are you full of doubt and fear and anxiety? You need to get training. Are you feeling separate? You need to understand God loves you. Jesus is saying, come to me. And we come to him every day. Who are you going to believe? Where are you going to go? And what are you going to do? You answer those three questions the way God wants you to, and your life will continue to grow in holistic holiness. We love you guys. Thank you.